So happy Father's Day. And I also want to say happy Juneteenth. You know, I know uh, how crazy everything is politicized these days, but it is a great thing that slavery came to an end in the United States. I think it was Galveston, maybe I'm not remembering this right, but it was Galveston, Texas that was the last place to hear, right? I grew up real close to Galveston, so I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but I want to focus on Father's Day, if you allow me. I'd like for us to think about Father's Day. God blesses us in all kinds of different ways. Some people he blesses with the gift of singleness. And some people he blesses with a life mate. And some of us he blesses with children. And some of us he blesses a marriage without children. But those of us who have been blessed to have children know that having children is an awesome blessing indeed. It is a great joy, but it's also a challenging thing, isn't it? It's not easy to be a parent. Cindy and I discovered this right off the bat with our first son. Now, he was an easy son to raise, but um, first of all, it was very questionable, in fact, even doubtful that we would ever be able to have children in the first place. Because not too long after we got married, when Cindy was in her mid-twenties, she was diagnosed with a serious cancer that required very extensive radiation treatment. And the doctor felt like the radiation treatment might make it impossible for us to ever have kids. But in God's grace and providence, just two days before our 10th anniversary, we had our first son. Now, during, the, during that pregnancy, we went through birthing classes, and, and they told us what to expect, and we were expecting a pretty standard-issue delivery. But that's not quite the way that it went. Uh, Andrew was reluctant to come into the world. And when I read the newspaper, I understand why. Uh, <laughs> so finally, the doctor gave up on him and said, uh, we're going to admit you into the hospital and induce labor. And they had a good effort at that, except Cindy's body just simply didn't cooperate. Some of you ladies may have experienced what she did, back labor. I don't know if any of you experienced that. My understanding is it's not fun. And she went into the hospital one day, and they began this process, and it wasn't working. It wasn't going well. It was very challenging all through the night into the next day. And finally, the medical team became very alarmed, saying that, the baby was in distress, and they had to do an emergency C-section. And when they said emergency, they meant emergency. I was stunned at how quickly we got into the operating room, and I, I gowned up and went into the operating room too, and how quickly the doctor had a scalpel in his hand and was cutting my wife open. And then out came Andrew, and he was, he was actually pretty blue. In fact, I tease him that he is a frost giant baby, and uh, I don't know, do they still do the Apgar scale, you parents? Do they still do that? They did the Apgar scale, and he was like at the bottom of it. But he, he revived, and he did great. And, and, and he, was, he was a wonderful child, and Evan, too, just so fun and easy kids. But even when your kids are fun and easy, parenting is just challenging. It's hard. In fact, Charlie Shedd wrote a book a few years ago about parenting I read. And he talked about a, a young pastor and his wife. They didn't have any kids. And he preached his first sermon on parenting. And he confidently entitled his message, How to Raise Your Kids. Then they actually had a child. <laughs> and the, the next sermon that he had was entitled, 
some suggestions to parents. <laughs> then he had a couple more kids, and his sermon on parenting was feeble hints to fellow strugglers. <laughs> then he had a couple more kids, and the next sermon on parenting was entitled, Anyone Here Got a Few Words of Wisdom? <laughs> That's just kind of how it goes with parenting. It's, it's challenging, isn't it? We want to be good parents, and we want so much for our children. What do you want for your children? How about this? Some parents say, what I want is for my child to, to, to be able to have a good job and make enough money to have financial security in their life. It's not a bad thing. What about this? We have some serious soccer moms in our church. Uh, some parents might say, I want my kids to be good athletes. Uh, most would say, we want our children to grow up to live a healthy lifestyle. What about this one? I want my children to be happy. That is actually the number one response to an international survey of 5,000 parents. The number one thing that they wanted for their children, 64%, is that their kids would be happy. Now, who doesn't want their kids to be happy? We want our kids to be happy, but there is something more than happiness. You remember Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world? And I think most of us would equate that with happiness. What would it gain for a man to, to, to get the whole world and yet lose his soul? The Bible says the pleasures of sin are fleeting. Next week, Pastor Zach is going to unpack our next sex, uh, section in 1 John, and he's going to talk about how this world and all the things it has to offer are passing away. And so as followers of Jesus, we want something more for our kids than just fleeting happiness. We want something better for our kids. We want them to know the God who created them in his image and, and to experience the joy, the peace, and love of eternal life. And so we know they can only find the true meaning and purpose of their life through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why we bring our kids before the church and ask our church to pray for them and dedicate them to the Lord because we care most about their spiritual life. We know that will flow into every other aspect of their life and will flow beyond this world into all eternity. So we know that. However, Barna Research did some research a, a while ago and they found that while most parents believe that and they believe that they as parents are the ones who are most responsible for teaching their kids about faith and about spiritual things, uh, the reality was 9 out of 10 parents with children under the age of 13 who believe that the parents hold the primary responsibility for teaching their kids about faith and about spiritual things, most of them don't do it. They don't have any plan for how to do it. They don't have any metrics by which they can evaluate it. Uh, they don't even try. They just bring their kids to church and expect the church to do all the teaching about their life spiritually and about faith. Well, coming to church is important, but we as parents want to speak into the lives of our kids spiritually. How do we do that? What should we teach them? What do we want our kids to know about faith and about spiritual life? Well, our teaching passage today actually speaks into that. And if you have your Bible, I would invite you to open it to that little New Testament book, 1 John, just a, a little bit before Revelation, 1 John, we're going to look at chapter 2 today, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. 
If you don't have a Bible, just take one there. It's provided for you. It's on page 1021 if you want to find 1 John 2, beginning in verse 12. Now, this passage talks about children and fathers, but it's not really talking about parenting directly. What it's actually talking about is, is about spiritual faith and growth. But as a dad, this passage speaks to me about a couple of things. First of all, the greatest gift I can give my children is not a nice home or even to pay for their college. The, the best gift I can give my children is my example of a living, growing faith in Christ. And secondly, the most important thing I will ever teach my kids is not how to drive a car, it's not how to shave, it's not how to manage their finances, but it is how they can establish and grow in a faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's what today's passage deals with. So it's not just for parents, it's for all of us. And in it are three important truths we need to grasp, specifically about this journey towards spiritual maturity that we all want to follow and see our kids follow. So if you have your Bible, look with me in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And if you're able, I invite you to stand with me. I like to do that when we read our teaching text. And it says this in 1 John, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Well, let me pray for us. Father, as we look at this, will you speak into our hearts? As fathers and mothers and as followers of Christ, will you help us see what John is saying that we need to hear today? We ask in your name, with the help of your Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, before we dig in, let me kind of set this up with two introductory th ideas. The, the first is this. As you know, we're, we're doing a study of 1 John. And when you read the little letter of 1 John, you'll notice that it's filled with all kinds of warnings and admonitions about people who say one thing, but then they do something else. About people who uh, need to know that you can't be in the light if you don't love your brothers. You can't be in the light if you choose to continue on in sin repeatedly, right? And so you might think when you read this letter, John has some serious doubts about the people who, in the church that are going to be reading this letter because they, maybe they're not really believers. But as you read our passage today, you realize, actually, John has absolute confidence in their being followers of Christ, their being truly heartfelt believers. In fact, you, we're going to notice he makes six statements, and six times he says, I am writing to you because, and then he makes a statement about why. For example, look at verse 12 as an example of this. He says, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. And what we want to take note of about each of these statements is, Greek scholars point out that he uses a particular form of the verbs he uses. And it's a form that they call the perfect form. And what they means is, 
is, is this. It's something that has already happened and has ongoing, continuing effect. For example, in verse 12, where he talks about your sins have been forgiven, what he's saying is your sins have already been forgiven and they're going to continue on to be forgiven. So you see the assurance he has? Each of these statements is that kind of statement, that kind of form of the verb. And so he has great confidence that they are true followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's so, I have a question for you. Then why all the warnings and admonitions? If he knows they're followers of Christ, why does he challenge them to examine their life, to look at their behavior, to look at their beliefs, to look at their beloved, that is, if they love others. Why is he challenging them about that? And the, ample, the answer is really clear. Even true believers struggle with these things, right? We may be true heartfelt followers of Christ, but not, we're not perfect, and we still struggle. The second thing, by way of introduction, I would say is, you'll notice he speaks to three groups. He speaks to children, fathers, and young men. And he makes a statement to each. So the, what we have is two sets of these three statements. And, and, and most scholars would agree he's not talking about biological ages. He's not talking about little babies and then fathers and then old people biologically, chronologically, right? Rather, he's talking about, um, he's talking about spiritual development, uh, stages of spiritual development. Now, the question is, is he talking about two stages of spiritual development, or is he talking about three? Now, you might say, well, Pastor John, this is a no-brainer, you know. Children, fathers, young men, count them, Pastor John, three, right? Well, not so fast, hotshot. <laughs> when you look at it, okay, when he says children... He may be talking about everybody. He may be saying children in the same way that he does in the very first verse of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these thing to, things to you so that you may not sin. And so he, he's talking to everybody in the church. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Zach taught us that John was already an old codger by the time he wrote this. And so he could call everybody in the church his children, spiritually, right? And, and so it could be that what he's saying is, um, to all of you who are children of God, my little children spiritually, those of you who are mature and those of you who are growing in your faith. So he could be referring to them as two groups. Which is it? Is it three groups or is it two groups? I kind of lean into it being two groups. But as my high school principal used to say, it don't matter none, you know, <laughs> because there are three things he has to say. And the things that characterize all of us are actually the most foundational first starting point. And so it, it would apply if he's talking to children in the faith anyway. So there, with that being said, three things that I call your attention to. Three things that we want to teach our kids and have them understand. Three things that I want to grasp and understand. And, and all of them come through faith in Jesus. So here's the first one. Through faith in Jesus, my sins are forgiven. Forgiven. Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then now let's skip to the end of verse 13, where he speaks to the children again. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, this is foundational. This is the starting point. 
My sins are forgiven, and I come into relationship with God to know Him as my spiritual Father. As Jesus would say, I have been born again of the Spirit of God spiritually and know God as my spiritual Father. Do you know what people say this generation coming up struggles with the most about God? I'm talking about those who are like teenagers and young adults now. You know what they say they really struggle with about God? They feel like God is angry at them all the time. Now, let me be honest with you. God has good reason to be angry with all of us <laughs> because all of us are sinners. You'll notice when he talks about sin, it's plural. There's an S at the end of that word. Your sins are forgiven because we really do things we shouldn't do. And we really fail to do the things that we ought to do sometimes, right? It's true for all of us. It's interesting to me, Daniel Pink, who is a, a best-selling secular author. He's not, it's not a religious writer. But he just wrote a book recently, I think, entitled The Power of Regret. And he says in his book, while we live in a culture today where people don't want to admit that they have regrets, people, people just want to kind of deny that they have regrets. The truth is, all of us do things we shouldn't do, and all of us have regrets. But the problem is, our culture doesn't have a, a constructive, hel helpful way of dealing with regret. God has provided a way for us to deal with our regrets, with our sins, if you will. He took them upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And on the death on the cross, Jesus received the just punishment of those sins. And he was raised to life. And he, he offers us complete forgiveness. That we can be right with God. And so, that's a wonderful truth. In fact, Peter, in the book of Acts, when he went to talk to a man named Cornelius and tell him about Jesus, Peter said this in Acts chapter 10. He said... To him, and there he's referring to Jesus, right? To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, that's us, right? Everyone who, what? Believes. That's all it takes, right? Who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Notice there's plural again, covers all of them. Reads forgiveness of sins through his name. Now you notice in verse 12, at the end of it, he, he gives why or how it is our sins are forgiven. And it's exactly what Peter just said to Cornelius. He says our sins are forgiven through his name, Jesus' name. And what John said is it is for his name's sake. In other words, it's not that we earn it. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we do penance for the things that we've done. So God then has to forgive us because of what we've done. It is simply what Jesus did on the cross in his resurrection, that God offers us in his grace and mercy complete forgiveness of everything if in simple faith we will trust him and receive it. The word for forgiven in our passage is passive. This is why John told, um, Peter told Cornelius, you receive it. You don't go get it. It's a gift you receive. It's simple faith, and we're forgiven. Not only are we forgiven, we are born into God's family and know him relationally as father. You might remember that last night Jesus had with his disciples before he was arrested. He prayed for you and me. And one of the things he prayed in John 17 is this. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
So he wants us to know him. It's not just believing things about God. It's trusting him and following him in that simple trust that brings us into right relationship with God as our father. So fathers, I would say to you this. The best thing you can do for your children is to teach them how God can be their father. I'm sure you're a great dad, but they need God as their spiritual father. And you need to teach them about that. And that requires more than just bringing them to church. As good as that is, it requires us teaching them that through Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And that effect carries on. In other words, there's nothing that you can do that will ever cause God to unforgive your sins. It's a done deal, and the effects of that carry on forever. And so it's a certainty. Do you have that assurance? Do you want your children to have that assurance? So that's the first thing. Following Jesus, faith in Jesus, means that my sins are forgiven. The second thing we see is this. Through faith in Jesus, I can deeply know God personally. Jesus now uses, a, uh, excuse me, uh, John now uses a term that was common in the Jewish culture. In fact, in many ancient cultures, um, whenever they were referring to someone who was older or more mature, even if they didn't have any biological relationship to them, they would call them father. And so let's look at how he now speaks to the fathers in verse 13. Look at the beginning of verse 13. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And again, look at verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? Or wait a minute. Did you notice a little difference in the, between those two verses? The ESV, which I'm using, and back in, in verse 13 it says, I am writing. And then in verse 14 it says, I write. I write. Um, and so... Some translations, like the New American Standard, translated, I have written. And here's something you need to know about John, and this is just kind of to help you uh, when you read stuff about John. Uh, this is just a stylistic choice by John. When he talks about children, and those two times we just read about, he uses a different word for ch children each time. And some people wonder about that. And what you need to know about John is, when he wrote, whether he was writing his gospel or writing these letters, he had a thesaurus next to him, <coughs> excuse me, and he would... He would use synonyms and things. And so that's just the writing style of John. And so there's, there's no difference between them. And what he's saying here is this. Turning from the, the, the starting point, foundational point. You put your faith in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You come into relationship with God. Uh, then you look to, he turns to the fathers. And he looks, okay, if, if, if this path of following Jesus leads you to become mature. Leads you to become uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 more like Christ ultimately. And, and you wonder, what does that look like? What are, what are we aiming for? Well, what is it, what's the end going to be in my life? Notice how he characterizes those who are mature in their faith. He says they know him, and him may refer to God or Jesus. I think probably it refers to Jesus personally. But Jesus said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And they're one, so it's, you know, it covers both, right? And, and, and so he says that you will know him who is from the beginning. He's talking about a deep, personal knowledge of God. Think about this. 
of all the ways you could describe a seasoned, mature believer, John says the most characteristic thing about them is they have a deep, personal, experiential knowledge of God. They know God. They're familiar with His ways. They recognize His voice. Our faith is not about rituals. It's not about intellectual information about God. I remind you, it was the Bible scholars of the day who had Jesus executed on the cross, right? It's not about morals. It's not about politics. It's about a deep, personal, love relationship with God through faith. I mean, just think about that. You know, that night Jesus prayed for us. He also prayed this in John 17. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. He's talking about us. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It is all about knowing God. Earlier that same night, Jesus talked about what it means to know God and how how this, this faith that we're involved in is about a dynamic living relationship. And he says this in John 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So it's about knowing God relationally, deeply. Do you know God this way? In, in, in one sense, all believers come to know God as Father. But there is a deeper knowledge of God, experience of God, that we grow in. Now, how do we gain that experience? How does this happen? Well, first of all, it takes time. It just takes time. Relationships take time, don't they? I'm going I'm to use an example, Cyrus, because he's not here today. <laughs> Keep that in mind when you think about missing church, you know. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> now... I know Cyrus. We've prayed together. We've been meetings together. I know Cyrus. But Pastor Zach knows Cyrus a lot better because they have served together for quite a number of years. And so they have a much deeper relationship because they've had more time together, right? But Maria, Cyrus's wife, knows him even far better than Pastor Zach because they have shared their lifetime together. And so some things just take time. But it's more than just time together. It has to also to do with the quality and nature of the relationship, right? Probably all of us know couples that have spent many years together in what I would call a devitalized relationship. And, and it's like they're living separate lives under the same roof. And their relationship actually hasn't matured no matter how many calendars they've gone through, right? And this can be true for us as Christians, too. Years of neglecting prayer, years of not studying and reading and thoughtfully meditating on God's Word, years of being sporadic in Christian fellowship and church, years of living in sinful disobedience to God will not result in our growing in our knowledge of God, no matter how many years pass, right? Notice how Paul describes maturity in Christ in Ephesians. He says this, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge, here's that knowledge element, of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, it's the kind of spending time with God where he influences me in a way that I start to become more like him, more like Christ. And, and there's an old saying, God has no grandchildren. And we want our children to really come into relationship with him and to walk with him in a way that shapes their character, that shapes how they think about the world, that shapes how they live. And so people who spend a lot of time in that kind of relationship mature in their faith. They become what John calls spiritual fathers. Now, I don't consider myself to be there yet, but I want to walk with God as closely as I can. And there are a lot of things I learned about God that I didn't know 40 years ago. I was just as sincere in my faith 40 years ago as I am now. But there's some things just spending the time walking through life with God has taught me. And so he says, through faith in Jesus, my sins are forgiven. Through faith in Jesus, I can deeply know God personally. And then finally he says, through faith in Jesus, I can overcome spiritual obstacles and grow in my faith. Most of us here today are not new in our faith. We've been believers for a little while. And most of us here are not, quote, spiritual fathers. Again, I, I don't consider myself to be one. We're somewhere in between, between. We're in process. We've come to faith. We're growing in our faith to become mature in our faith, right? We're on that continuum. Uh, and so John calls us young men. And let's see how he speaks to us in the second part of verse 13. Look at the second part of verse 13. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says the same thing in verse 14, but he fleshes it out a little bit more. Look with me at verse 14, the second part of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what does this tell us? Just at first blush, what does this tell us about the process of growing in our faith? It tells us it's not easy. It tells us it's a battle. It tells us it is an outright war. Why? Because we're just still sinners. And, and, and I just have that propensity to want to do the wrong thing. And, and, and because there are spiritual influences around us that are tempting us. And because we live in a world that's actually in rebellion against God. And, and, and it's trying to pressure us to, to get in line and follow the ways of the world rather than seek and follow God. Now, who is it that usually fights the fight? Well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, who is it that usually competes in professional sports, like, let's say, football? It's not little children, is it? It's not old men. It's young men, right? Who is it that fights in the army? It's not little children. It's not old men. If I went to the recruiting office, they'd say, I don't care how many push-ups you can do or how fast you can run. You're too old, you know. It's for young men. And so he characterizes those who are in the fight of working through their faith, which is probably most of us. He characterizes them as young men. Now, I do want to add this. You never reach a point where you don't struggle with temptation and, and, and you're perfect, right? We're always going to be struggling. But, but what's most characteristic of this group is they are trying to work through their salvation. They're trying to grow in their faith. And he shows how this progress works in this. First of all, he assures them of the victory. 
You have overcome. And I want to remind you of the verb. I told you about that verb tense at the beginning. It's something that has already happened, and the effects of that are continuing on. And so it's our victory has happened already in Jesus Christ. Jesus, again, that last night he spent with his disciples, also told them something. In John 16, he said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, the only reason that John could say to those who are young men who are trying to work out their salvation, the only reason he could say, you have overcome the evil one, is because that was accomplished through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. It's his victory. And the second thing he says is because of that, you are strong. Again, this is not strength in themselves. I remind you of what Paul writes in Philippians 4. He says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now again, sometimes I feel like, oh God, this is just more than I can bear. Have you ever felt that way? And maybe it's a temptation. Some of us, you know, we have that temptation. That's that thing that's the hard thing for us to say no to. Um, like maybe a maple bar with bacon on it. <laughs> you know, it's some temptation, right? And, and, and we just feel, I can't do this. I just am not strong enough. My faith isn't strong enough. And, and, and Jesus says to us, just trust me. I will give you the strength. In my strength, you can do this. And then he goes on to say, I believe, how God gives us the strength to overcome. And it's this, because he says, the word of God abides in you. And I think this is the key that makes us strength, gives us the strength to be victorious. It is God's word. You remember when Jesus began his ministry, he was tempted. He was taken into the wilderness and tempted three times. How did he face that temptation? Someone tell me. Scripture. He used God's word. He confronted that temptation with the truth of God's revealed word. And so I want to remind you of a familiar teaching of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16. And he says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Do you allow the word of God to abide in you? Do you regularly, dare I say almost even daily, read the Bible? Do you try to dig into it, to really understand it, to study it? to meditate on it, to reflect on it. And for those of you who still have a memory, uh, memorize it. <laughs> That's a struggle for me. Pray for me about that, will you? I'm, I'm, just, I'm very discouraged about Scripture memory. Um, but to, to really dig into it. And fathers, do you teach your children God's Word? Or do you just send them off to church and let the, the teachers downstairs teach them? Do you take the time to talk to them about what God's Word says? Do they see that God's word is critical to you and your life and faith? Deuteronomy tells us, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In his book, wisdom, The Wisdom Pyramid, Brett McCracken talks about his father and his father's Bible. Let me just read a, 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 a a part of what he said. Here's what he says. I will always remember my dad's Bible. 
As a kid, it was a fixture in our house. Thick, black, leather-bound with gold leaf edges, stuffed full of church bulletins, scripture memory cards, and who knows what else. The well-worn pages were adorned with underlined verses, variously colored highlighted sections and scribbled margins. I saw Dad with it almost every day, studying during his quiet time, preparing a Sunday school lesson, or maybe leading a family, our family in a, a dinnertime devotional. The presence of Dad's Bible nearby was a comfort. I think it made the Bible more credible to me. For my dad, it wasn't just a, a prop to bring to church on Sundays. It was his beloved source of guidance for everyday life. And Dad, on Father's Day, I wonder, wow, would our kids say that about us? Do they see that in our lives? John starts with the foundation of our being forgiven and coming to know God as our Father. And, and, and then he looks to the end that we become mature fathers who know God. He who is from the beginning, a deep, intimate, personal knowledge of God. And then he looks, how do you get from there to there? And he, and he shows us, it's knowing that through Christ, he, he has overcome the evil one. And that allowing the word of God to abide in us makes us strong so that we can overcome. So let me close with this. As I thought about Father's Day, I thought particularly about those who don't have the influence of a godly father in their life. I, I read this week about what some call the Internet Dad. You may have heard of him. His name is Rob McKinney, or excuse me, Rob Kinney. Rob Kinney has a YouTube channel entitled Dad, How Do I? Dad, How Do I? Uh, it went viral during COVID. Uh, Kinney released his first video shortly after the coronavirus pandemic was declared. Let me just kind of read here what this article said. He wanted to provide practical advice, how to fix running toilets. Who didn't need to know that? <laughs> and emotional support. One of his videos is entitled, I'm Proud of You. But, but in a time defined by isolation and loneliness, his messages resonated with far more than the 30 or 40 subscribers he expected. He now surpassed 3.4 million subscribers and 15 million views. When Good Morning America referred to the 57-year-old as the Internet's dad, followers flooded him with stories about their parents, broken relationships, and traumatic experiences. Kenny said, It breaks my heart that so many people need my channel. The seeds for his videos were planted in Kenny's tumultuous childhood. When his parents divorced, his dad gained custody. His mom was legally declared unfit to parent as she turned to alcohol. Soon after, Kenny's dad met another woman. On the weekend, he would stock up his kids with groceries and then leave them as he drove an hour away. After a year, he gathered his children to deliver a devastating message. I'm done with raising kids. Kenny, who was 14 at the time, moved in with his 23-year-old newlywed brother in a 280-square-foot trailer. His teenage experience was full of anger, sorrow, and confusion as he vowed to never cause his own children such pain. That pledge broadened when he realized he wasn't the only kid without a dad around, so he doubled down and decided he'd also help anyone else who needed a father figure. Once Kenny reached his 50s, his early 50s, feeling he had accomplished his goal of raising two good adults, he thought he had plenty more life to live, zeroing in on the second part of his vow to help others. His daughter says, I genuinely think he was put on earth to be a dad. Over the past year, Kenny has 
leaned into his faith to prevent himself from feeling too overwhelmed. His early morning habit of reading the Bible provides him with calmness and clarity. Last Father's Day, his followers mailed him scores of cards, some handmade, many heartfelt. The fact that strangers are celebrating him at all reflects a man who found time to share his story in a world that was desperate to hear it. I looked at his most recent video this past week. It's about how to change windshield wipers in a car. In less than a week, it had more than 13,000 views. Our kids need a dad, how do I? Dad, how do I come to have my sins forgiven and to know God as my father? Dad, how do I come to deeply know God in a personal, profound way? Dad, how do I overcome the things that I'm struggling, the temptations and the discouragement and my own failures? How, how do I deal with that? How do I allow God's word to deeply be rooted in my heart so that I can experience the victory that Jesus Christ has provided for me? And my prayer is that we can be dads who help our kids know how to do these things spiritually. And we can be a church that can help us all do that. Would you join with me as I pray? Father God, thank you that you are indeed our Father. And that you want us to not just know about you, not just go through rituals, not just follow certain moral teaching, but to have a deep and personal, intimate relationship with you where we, we know you, like Jesus said, sheep, know his voice and follow him. Will you help us to share that with our kids, that they too might experience what faith in Christ provides for them? We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen.